We will be in Ecclesiastes 9, 13, and all of chapter 10. So that's 10 verses 1 through 20. And as you're turning there, I have to say something that I feel like you might call me out on because I feel like I have already said it a couple of times during the service. But this was a very difficult passage (laughs) to figure out how to preach and structure. Uh, I came across a couple other commentators who I feel had already said that about other portions of Ecclesiastes, but this one was a doozy. Um, It kind of, it it seems to be all over the place. I think uh, I found a structure to it with the help of some much wiser men and women than me, and so uh, I think we will be able to see what God is saying to us, Um, but it is a, a hard passage, not because of the the content or wording, I think just it doesn't seem to necessarily click together. But as we're reading this, what I want you to try to listen for is how many times this refers to kings and rulers, and how many times it talks about wisdom or the wise and fools. See how much that comes up to you. And it might help you get an idea of where I'm headed in today's sermon. So Ecclesiastes 9, verses 13 through 10, verse 20. Hear now the reading of God's word. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a, a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, Do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his task is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? 
The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Let's pray. Lord, as always, when we come to Ecclesiastes, may we be reminded that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. There is important words of wisdom and examples of the wise and warnings of the foolish and examples of what a foolish life looks like. May you give us, by your Spirit, Lord, illumination to see and to be encouraged and to know how to live rightly, to know how to uh, pray for leaders that are wise and what to do when we are in the service or at the uh, dispensing of foolish leaders. In the preaching of this service today, Lord, may the word of God be magnified. May the Son of God be glorified and the people of God edified. Amen. When I came in this morning, Jonathan said, I really hope today's sermon is all about verse 19. Money answers everything, right? It's just that this has got to be what's going to be about. Eat your bread, drink some wine, make money. Uh, that is not what today's sermon is about. It's something way less controversial. Uh, it's about politics. Right now, I would say that with the decline of Christianity in America um, and the decline of, of, of culture in general, we have substituted religion and the church for politics. So I want to do something really careful. And Amanda gave me words of wisdom before this. I'm not naming names in this sermon. I'm probably going to name parties, but I'm not going to call out just one party. I'm going to try to call out things that we've all experienced in politics, or as we'll see here, other leaders. I mean, there's times where the language shifts to just rulers, just people that are in authority over you. All of us experience that, and all of us experience actually, you know, being uh, influenced and and being affected by politicians and laws and legislation. But the point is that I want to start with is that religion in America has declined while political allegiance has soared. I saw a thing not long ago um, about how during the the last election, I guess over a year now, but um, they were noticing how families of different political ideologies had started to separate or not talk to one another because of them. It is now, you know, parents that are Republican or Democrat are now, you know, terrified if their daughter or son brings home somebody of the opposite political party. Forget if they're not the same religion. Don't bring home that Democrat to this house. It has become a substitute when we don't have faith in God, when we don't have when we don't have a church uh, culture to, to bind us who have differences of opinions, we have to latch everything on 
to politics and every election, every decision, you know, is going to be the end times for somebody or, or going to be a, another reason for us to be more and more divided. So I thought this was an interesting passage to get to because it talks a lot about wisdom of our leaders and how when we have wise leaders, we're blessed. Well, what does a wise leader look like? The preacher tells us. What does a foolish leader looks like? Looks like the preacher tells us. So I'm going to go through actually this fairly quickly because I want to point us to something that we can actually do. So politics has become our cultural culture's religion. So I think what we need to be doing as we read this is pray. Pray for wise leaders and learn how to persevere during bad leaders. So I think we, the preacher wants us to pray for wise leaders who prefer conversation to conflict. In verses uh, 14 and 16, we have this, uh, we're told once again that the preacher has seen something. He sees a, a small city that's attacked by a great king who brings siege works against it. But, but the wisdom of one poor singular man saves the city. Now, the preacher uses this language a lot. I have seen this. And he could have seen it uh, by reading scripture. In 2 Kings 6 through 7, we're told the story of Syria's war against the kingdom of Israel, specifically the city of Samaria. And when they come against Israel, they bring great siege works and they besiege the city so much, so intense is the siege, that eventually they're starving out the, the, king, the city of Samaria and people are forced to eat their own children. This is one of the conversations a, a woman of Israel has with the king as he's riding by in Samaria. But by God's mercy, the Syrians were struck with confusion and turmoil one night in their camp, and they abandoned it. And they weren't discovered or, or given wisdom by a poor man, but four lepers who were so desperate for food decided to go to the Syrian camp because they've got to feed all these soldiers only to discover it was abandoned. And they run and tell the good news to Samaria. They're gone. Come and take all this food. Famine's over. Let's feast. Of course, you also may have heard uh, or seen this with the story of Themistocles, the Athenian leader, who, was a great, uh, who the great historian Plutarch say, had called the savior, or the savior of the Hellens, the Greeks. He was a brilliant politician and naval strategist, as well as an orator, and he rallied all these separate Greek city-states together to fight the Persian invasion led by Xerxes. Uh, he famously actually helped recruit the Spartan king Leonidas to make his stand at Thermopylae of the 300 uh, Spartans versus the legions of Xerxes. But this parable of, of wisdom of one man saving a city being besieged illustrates that despite the unlikely source of wisdom, wisdom can save cities and kingdoms. And this is going to be the pattern here. We're given this parable or the, this picture, and then there's a bit of an interpretation or, or proverb to go with it, and that's in verses 17 and 18. The preacher says, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom is rare and should be heeded. But what is usually heeded? Shouting, raising your voice, screaming, 
Clapping your hands, that grabs people's attention. Public speakers can stir emotion, emotions by you know, the elevation of their voices or getting down low, and they can lure people in with their passion from a podium. It can give an appearance of confidence and passion, and maybe even intelligence when maybe it's lacking. Two brief illustrations of this that I think help give us, help us see this is uh, the film in The King's Speech, which depicts uh, King George VI, that's the current Queen Elizabeth's dad. He had a, a severe speech impediment, and he was, as he's becoming the king, he's afraid of trying to stir his people to hope during the beginnings of World War II. And there's a scene where he's watching some news footage on a reel in his uh, palace, and Adolf Hitler pops up, and it's characteristic Hitler. I mean, he's shouting, he's slamming the podium, he's gesticulating his arms everywhere. And little Princess Elizabeth comes in and says, Papa, what's he saying? And King George VI says, I don't know, but he seems to be saying it rather well. The second illustration I heard from a great preacher named H.B. Charles, and he tells this probably very apocryphal story of a very gifted preacher of a huge church, and he really he brought the word one Sunday, and everyone was blessed, and the, the humble janitor on Monday morning was kind of cleaning up the sanctuary after church, and he notices that the notes from the pastor's sermon are still up on the, the podium, and so he decides he wants to go have a look, see how his pastor's mind works, and as he gets there, he's reading through them, and then he's shocked to find a handwritten note in the margin from the pastor that says, my point is weak here, start shouting. Shouting grabs people's attention. It gives the sense of confidence, and it's the same today. Voices that are often the loudest carry the day while calmer, more reasonable, maybe softer words go unheeded. Wisdom, says the preacher, is better than weapons of war. We shouldn't shy away from confrontation, but a leader is going to seek first conversation. He's going to seek first diplomacy. Why? Because a good leader is going to recognize that his actions will affect lives of both the people he's promised to protect and, honestly, innocent lives of those that we may fight against. But there is something dangerous here. One sinner destroys much good. In the 20th century, how true is this verse? Think of Hitler in World War II. Think of Stalin. Think of Mao. Think of Ho Chi Minh. One man shouting can set the world on fire and has. And we in America might think we're immune from this, but we're not. Whether it's in small local communities or even at national levels, we have all been susceptible to the loudest voices on either the right or the left, stirring up bases against one another. And, and right now in our digital age, we're even in less conversation with people we disagree with. We have less interactions with people of different political or cultural or religious outlooks. And we see this in Twitter and Facebook where we find a built-in network of people that think just like me. I, I don't ever have to interact with people that disagree with me or have a difference of opinion. And what's worse, though, is that I think that then I'm seeing an accurate reflection of the world 
that fits the way I view the world, but really I'm being led down paths by algorithms that are actually controlling me to see an outcome that I am both choosing and is being chosen for me. Wisdom, the preacher warns, comes in conversation and self-control, not fear and rashness. And so we get to these, uh, the first verses of chapter 10, which are these short proverbs, and we're going to go through them pretty quickly because they just illustrate a point. If we're talking about politics and big things, let's not forget that we can be affected by these as well. So dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Derek Kidner, the, the great Old Testament scholar, said this, it's easier to make a stink than to create sweetness. One little mistake can really mess up something beautiful or something you've worked hard on. A wise man hearts, heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. This is classic Old Testament language of right and left. The left is always associated with something lacking morally. Um, I actually found out that our word sinister is from the Latin, which actually means left-handed or left. Um, I've got a left-handed brother-in-law. I don't think he's sinister, but, but this is the biblical way of saying that the, the heart of a fool is going to choose the wrong things. And even when the fool walks around, he just is, there's a way about him where he just knows something's not right with this person. Something is off. And then we get where I'm going to stop for another second. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. All right, this seems to contradict something that the preacher said earlier. If you remember back in Ecclesiastes 8, he actually talks about how to stand up to an abusive or evil ruler. And he actually says you should leave him. Don't be a part of a ruler that's leading you into evil or sin. But here he's saying, calm, patience, don't move. Gideon demonstrated this in Judges 8.3 when he kept his cool and spoke wisely with a very angry tribe of Ephraim through his keeping a cool after the Ephraimites are mad that he doesn't call them to join in battle. That kind of comes swinging all sorts of insults at him and Gideon just stays calm, speaks to them rationally and appealing to you know, the good that has been done that day and he actually wins the Ephraimites over and avoids a tribal civil war. And have you done this with those in authority over you notice the this is one of those parts where it switches to rulers all right this is drawing from our ordinary life experience everyone i'm assuming if they're an adult in this room has been yelled at by a boss or somebody in authority over us would it work in every situation for you to just equally fire off back at your boss no you'd probably be out of a job quickly I had a friend once that told me that he had been chewed out by his boss. He was very upset by the whole encounter. Uh, and he decided that he was going to go over his head, uh, over the boss's head, and try to get the boss in trouble. And before he could do this, his boss swung around to his cubicle and apologized very sincerely and said, I just, it, not an excuse, but I got a lot of things going on. My emotions got the better of me, and I just, I took it out on you. I'm very sorry for the way I behaved. And my friend melted and he was convicted of how quickly he had delighted in the feeling of revenge. He didn't want justice. He wanted vengeance. But vengeance is mine, says Scripture. 
So we should pray for wise rulers who seek conversation over confrontation, and we ourselves need to know when to have patience and perseverance, whether it's in politics or in the ruler who is venting at us. We should also be praying for wise rulers because our social order isn't a guarantee. It can be upended. Verses 10, uh, or verses 5 through 7 give this illustration. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Here again is an evil that the preachers witnessed. He's seen it with his own eyes, and once again we see that he's referring to, to rulers and authorities, and this time we're told it's an error. What I'm about to describe to you, and in the, the Proverbs that follow, all of this flows out of an error whose foundation, whose root is in something a leader did wrong. So verses 6 through 7 show us this societal upheaval, and it proves that in every age, our structures, our circumstances, our way of doing life, they can flip. In an instant, we should be praying for leaders because they appoint leaders. Notice it says that folly is set in many high places. This is talking about a leader who has the power to put other leaders in positions of power. When a new president is elected in this country and everything's settled and we know it, what do we immediately begin to analyze? Who's the cabinet pick? Who's going to be secretary of state? Who's going to be secretary of defense? Well, why? because these people are not elected. They are appointed by the people that won the election. And in an instant, they could go from a pretty decent senator to the Secretary of Defense, one of the most powerful positions in our government. We wanna know who is this person? Are they wise or are they foolish? Are they a hothead or are they calm under pressure? They don't get a free pass. Obviously, they have to be confirmed by the Senate, but we've seen this happen too many times now where this is becoming something of a scene for party loyalty versus competency of the person being grilled. And he goes on to illustrate his point to the, uh, that the effects of a poor ruler has on this society by describing a slave on a horse and a prince walking. And it's kind of hard for us maybe to get this, but you know, horses were a pretty big deal in the ancient Near East. So no slave is going to be riding on one. It's for the wealthy. It's for the nobilities. And he's seeing how quickly the roles can be switched and reversed. Derek Kidner again points out that the preacher is not calling out as being a triumph for social justice. This isn't the poor being lifted up and the rich getting what they deserve. Although he, the preacher has no problem criticizing the people at the top or calling out injustice. We've seen that before. What we know is that this is rooted in an error. What he's describing is actually not a good thing. We must pray for those in authority who appoint leaders over us and who are responsible for keeping our social order together because we've seen that mobs can overthrow tyrants and then become that which they overthrow. And again, there's a series of Proverbs that highlight the dangers of self-inflicting wounds because all of this in verses five through seven are politicians inflicting themselves. They, through their folly, they pick bad leaders to head up other things that create more problems, that create societal unrest and, and flipping and, and revolutions maybe even. And as a politician can self-inflict himself and his campaigns or his career, 
we all have done this, or we all are not free uh, from error and self-infliction. One of the ones that stuck out to me is in verse 9. He says, he who splits logs is endangered by them. Uh, Have any of you ever split logs with an axe? Okay. Have anybody used an axe or a, a log splitter? Okay. This is a cool machine. You put a log in it. It has basically an axe head on it. And you just press a, a, usually a button or a lever or something, and it slams through, and it splits the log. And it frees you up from doing all the work. But it is super dangerous because you've got to make sure everyone's all clear of the log before you do it. And a friend uh, of mine in high school had a little brother. They were doing the log splitter, and sure enough, the little brother wasn't paying attention. The older brother wasn't paying attention. And he let that thing go. And uh, my buddy's brother went from having five fingers to four. Self-infliction is something that we can all have happen to us. And in verse 8, he says, he who digs a pit will fall into it. Uh, Somebody can dig a pit and not be paying attention and and fall into it. It is part of us being human, of us being foolish, that we can self-inflict ourselves. So as we pray for wise rulers not to have that happen to us, because we will suffer consequences, we should be praying for the wise rulers so that we will be blessed And that's what verses 16 through 19 are all about. There's blessings and cursings, and there's two ways of looking at it. If there is a climax to this section of Scripture, it's right here. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. The kingly child that comes up here in in verse 16, when your king is a child, Isaiah says something very similar to the kingdom of Judah. In Isaiah 3, 4, the uh, the Lord says through Isaiah, I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. Now, this isn't actually referring to the age of a child because Israel actually had a great king, Josiah, who started to reign at eight years old. And once he becomes king, he sets his heart to follow Yahweh. So we know that this isn't necessarily the age of a child, but it is what we could refer to as the man-child. It's the immaturity of a leader that we you know, experience today with our shortage of men being men and addicted to video games or procrastinating a career. But why is it a bad thing to have an immature ruler? Well, the preacher says because they feast in the morning. They wake up and start partying. They're doing all the wrong things at all the wrong times. They have their priorities all backwards, as we're going to see. But next we see the blessing of a good leader. They know when it is to feast. They know when it is to work. And the preacher's not a snob. It says that it's... uh, Happy are you, O land, when the king is the son of the nobility. This isn't the preacher all of a sudden saying, let's stick to the elites. He already addressed in chapter 4 that a nobody of humble origin could rise up to be a great king. And he probably knew that you know, nobility doesn't excuse uh, poor rule. So Rehoboam was the grandson and son of two great kings of Israel, and he was a terrible, foolish ruler. But the reference to nobility is this idea that there is a stability in their length of rule and a continuation to keep a nation um, together and not coming apart at the seams. Wise leaders will prioritize their politics, 
and pleasure, and so, rightly, so rule rightly and not give over to the indulgences that their offices uh, may offer. So as we see, the foolish uh, leaders end up having problems with infrastructure. That's why it talks about roof sinkings in and uh, the house having leaks. And verse 19, which seems a little bit like eat, drink, and be merry, is actually the poor leader's excuse. Well, houses are falling down, um, our roads aren't great, the infrastructure's crumbling, but you know what? Bread's making me feel good, wine's making me happy, money can solve everything. It's an excuse to just keep living a licentious, partying lifestyle. And many leaders have been fools like this with dramatic consequences. Pope Leo X was the ruler of the Catholic Church from 1513 to 1521. He famously, when he was elected pope, held a parade led by a child that he painted in gold, real gold, so that after the parade, the child died. He hired the world-renowned artist Raphael to paint his palace for him. And then he sent out literal prosperity preachers to sell indulgences to raise funds to build St. Peter's Basilica, the most famous of whom would be Johann Tetzel, who said, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It was Johann Tetzel, who was the final and absolute last straw for a young monk named Martin Luther, who decided to protest all these indulgences of the Catholic Church. Uh, in order to maintain the lavish lifestyle of King Louis XIV, the French government spent 25% of its revenue to keep up with him and his wife's excessive lifestyle. He was the last king of France before the bloody and horrific French Revolution that saw all of French society flip end on end. Poor people were riding horses after that one. We should pray for wise rulers because our society depends on it. And now we come to this parting criticism in verse 20. Be careful in criticizing the those who have power to punish. The preacher says, if it's in your thought, don't curse the king. If you're in your bedroom, don't curse the rich or the powerful. For somehow, some way, they're going to hear about it. And they're going to have the power to punish you for it. The preacher showed us earlier that it can be right and good to criticize a king if it's done wisely and at the right time. Here is a caution against the doing it at the wrong time and in the wrong way. So what do we make of all of this? Right? This was a jumbled political, proverbial, illustrative section of scripture. And the, the big influence, the big point has to be politics mixed in with ways to get our attention by how we also can experience some of what he's criticizing in the political world in our everyday lives. I think we can take from this three things that we can act politically as Christians. And as we can do this, we can uh, think and act politically as a Christian in prayer, in perseverance, and in prophecy. Prayer. Paul instructs the church under Timothy's leadership to pray always for kings and all who are in high positions. Peter encourages the church to honor the emperor. Most of the time I do the pastoral prayer, um, I didn't, I think I skipped the whole pastoral prayer today. Um, we pray for our mayor, our senators, our governors, those in authority over us. Even if I didn't vote for the person, I'm not free from not praying for them. Why? Because I want them 
to make wise decisions so that I have freedom, that I have, you know, I'm do, having paid like good taxes or I am benefiting from where my tax money is going to. I need the government to give me a good way of life in some way. And if I'm not praying for them, it's kind of like, do I have a right then to criticize them? It's kind of like in church life when people who don't tithe are kind of the ones that are always running their mouth about how they want the church to run. I'm actually praying for the well-being of those God has placed in authority over me. Perseverance. So Peter says, honor the emperor. The emperor he is telling the people to honor is Nero, who literally lit Christians on fire for his amusement, who put them in clothes of beast skins and set them into the Colosseum to be torn to shreds by other animals. And this is who Nero, Peter says, honor. He wasn't being tongue-in-cheek. He wasn't being uh, sarcastic. He is saying that we should honor this king. Paul tells us in Romans 13 and in Titus 3 to be submissive to rulers because God has placed them in authority. And Jesus taught that it's good to pay taxes to the government. Why? Because government isn't evil. It just can be used for evil purposes. But taxes can help people and programs and is a necessary good of uh, keeping structure in God's common grace earthly kingdom. But he, Jesus also taught that his kingdom was not of the world. And Paul said our citizenship is in heaven. So to amend slightly something Paul says elsewhere, we persevere not as those without hope. Our hope isn't in worldly politics or in the president. It is in a king and a kingdom. And we persevere bad rulers because we pray for good rulers to replace the bad ones. And finally, prophesy. I'm not talking about calling out visions or foreseeing or anything like that. One of the classic ways of prophecy in the Old Testament is to speak out God's word to a people or to a king or to a government, usually calling them to repent. Uh, the colloquial saying now, I guess, would be speak truth to power. Our confession of faith says that the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are part of as the visible church, the kingdom of God, calling the kingdom of the world to repent when they are outside of God's law or way. In the Old Testament, the prophets regularly called leaders and kings to righteousness. And we saw this a few weeks ago with Nathan's well-structured rebuke of David. We see it in Elijah's ministry and Elisha's. We see it in the written prophets, like in Isaiah 1 and 4. He says, Ah, sinful nation! a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And a few verses later, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. And we see this theme of criticizing, persevering, and prophesying in Acts 5. When Peter is arrested for the second time and brought before the Sanhedrin, he's already been told not to preach you know, again in the name of Jesus, and he's doing it again. And Peter famously responds, we must obey God rather than men. He wasn't trying to do some big upheaval. He wasn't doing a revolution. He wasn't saying down with Rome. But he was preaching Jesus Christ crucified, and people were being saved and being healed. And he's being told not to do that, and that was the final straw. And so he had to speak back the truth of God's word to those who were 
in power over him. And for that statement, he is beaten. Not released, but he's still beaten. He still had to persevere, and there was a consequence, but it was the, the consequences of obeying God were far better than obeying men. A couple weeks ago, uh, I got to go to the Jumpstart ministry in Brent, and I was blessed to ha- have shared my time there with two Ukrainian missionaries who had a wonderful uh, ministry of running a school for missionary children. But they shared this powerful short story. Uh, the church, they're based in Odessa in the Ukraine, and uh, they actually have a, a Presbyterian denomination that the PCA kind of helped start. And uh, the church in Odessa was actually given by the Ukrainian government an old reformed church that was built before the October Revolution of, so, of the uh, communist Russia. And uh, MTW raised a whole bunch of funds to, to renovate and fix this church so that people could start worshiping in it. And when they needed a new roof really bad, and when they got to the roof, they found in one of the eaves the cross that had been sawed off by the communists. And it was just, it looked like it had been literally sawed off, taken, thrown down into this eave, and it sat there for almost 60, 70 years. And now it's seated on a wall in the church. When the Russian communists tore that cross down, they probably thought that's the end of that. No more Jesus, no more churches, we're enlightened, we've got the power, we're better, we will outlast this church. And today, there is no communist Russia, and the cross that they thought and, you know, presumed to so easily dispense with is still up drawing people to the king that controls their kingdom and the kingdom of heaven. Tough times may lie ahead for America. We are increasingly a post-Christian culture, but we are not to go in to just despair, but have hope, and we should be doing our part of praying for wise leaders and persevering when we are given foolish ones. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today of wisdom and perseverance. Thank you for showing us vividly in an intention-grabbing way um, the dangers of folly and pride and arrogance and the joys of living a wise life. Lord, we can only be um, wise through your spirit and through meditation of scripture. So I pray that you would be with us this week as we try to live out lives of wisdom and lives uh, centered around your son. In his name we pray. Amen.